Section 5 of the Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Linnea Hutton. The Heirloom by T. Duffy Lyle. Home. Bertrand Gannault had now been in London twenty months. Twenty months sailing over the precarious seas of legal uncertainty and doubt now lifted up or buoyantly and smoothly wafted onward by some favouring tide now again stranded upon some shallow of despond or again driven backwards by some adverse and unkindly gale such indeed too surely is the experience of those who confide their material and worldly interests to the gloriously uncertain pilotage of british law he travels with as much certainty who commits his fate to its decisions as does he who ignorant of tides and winds and currents trusts himself to the mercy of some stormy seas it was this that bertram Gannault had done and after that dreary twenty months of uncertainty of waiting of doubt he rejoiced to believe that the lights and shore signs and harbour marks of his desired haven were in view with bertram Gannault, vernwood was at that time the desired haven of his life the unstable sands of the condemned system, which had once afforded him a foothold, an anchorage in life had given way. The elements of disruption, which had long seethed beneath the surface of the deeply sin and blood-stained slave system of Virginia, Kentucky, and other of the southern states had caught, with one magnificent effort, with one supreme upheaval, volcanic in its similitude and results, it had burst asunder the shackles of a national dishonor, had wiped the reproach of slavery from its escutcheon, and cast from it its darkest shame. It would add nothing to the purpose or interest of this story. It would convert many chapters into dry pages of legal detail. Were we, step by step, to take the reader with us through the intricate quibbles and legal byways of this twenty months of his life? It is enough here to say that some twenty months after his first call at Mr. Lumley's office and his subsequent visit to Rosemead, the pale-faced, white-haired lawyer, advised and directed by his clear-headed, non-agenarian ex-partner and code adjutor, and with a degree of expedition quite uncommon and quite refreshing when compared to the ordinary, deliberate procedure of English litigation, had so far and so surely pushed forward Bertram Gannault's claim to Vernwood, that one fine summer's day a modernized vehicle upon four wheels, drawn by two grey horses, rolled briskly through the entrance gates of Vernwood. The equipage was evidently a hired concern, and although respectable enough of its kind, there was, to the eye of the connoisseur, just that indeterminable dissimilarity between it and the spruce and spanking span of my lady or my lord as there was between the coachman's livery which might have revived by the retouchings of some renovating jew and the faultless new broadcloth of the arrogant jeems who postures behind her ladyship's chair in all the superb importance of his aristocratic connections and high life below stairs in the vehicle aforesaid sat alone a dark-eyed, keen-featured, but handsome young man. This hired equipage rattled boldly along the carriage drive, 
up to the front of the mansion, and Bertram Gnault alighted and stood a minute, gazing around him, absorbed in admiration. And then did Bertram mentally murmur to himself, And this, at last, is home. Home. Was that word ever more fitly applied than when Vernwood was spoken of as home? There are homes about us in which but little of the beneficent waters of human sympathy and human kindness seem to flow. There are homes, beautiful homes, which those who live in them seem only to dishonor. But as Bertram Gnault stood there, easily graceful, adonic in form, he looked as if he did no discredit to Vernwood, as it lay around him at that moment as its lord. On every hand were the elements of superlative beauty. But it was not yet the Vernwood of twenty years later. It was not the Vernwood of seventy years before. The Vernwood of twenty years later was what Bertram Gnault made it. The Vernwood of seventy years before was what the spendthrift gaming Hubert Gnault had left it. But it was Vernwood as Vernwood had stood and grown and developed through the centuries, the home of more generations of his forefathers than Bertram Gnault cared to think about or to count. And as he stood there, it was Bertram's heritage, his proved possession, and sooner or later he would enter upon his own. But as Vernwood was owned now, they who held it held it for one object alone, to sap its revenues, to revile its beauties, to squeeze from it the most usurious percentage upon every hundred pounds which they or their forebears had advanced on the security of its broad acres, its stately oaks, its manorial rights, and its intrinsic money-producing worth, minus sentiment or emotion. And yet, with the common deserts of inordinate greed, they had cheated themselves out of the very gem of Vernwood's wealth. They had netted the oyster, they had opened its shell, they had aimed at draining it of its very life, but they had overlooked within it the existence of the priceless pearl. But it was this pearl beyond and above all things on which the shrewd young American had fixed his eye. He was not philanthropic enough to say to those who would not hesitate to drain him or drain his patrimony of the lost drag of the blood of life, Bertram Gnault was not philanthropic enough to say to them, Therein lays the life. Why should he? Why should he scruple for a moment to pluck out the feathers of those who would, without compunction, divest and rob him of his very skin? The Captain Gillingham, of whom the old ex-lawyer Horace Windham had spoken to, Bertram Gnault, was the occupier of Vernwood still. His tenancy was a very long one and again and again renewed, till it extended from Captain Gillingham's early life on into middle age, and then on again till time seemed overtaking him with its honors of silvered locks and wise counsels and tottering tread. If Captain Gillingham was not a man of great riches, as great riches come and go in these banking, trading, manufacturing, industrial days, Still, his wealth was ample for the gratification of all the needs, as well as all the desires and even the fads of his life, as well as enough over and to spare. What seemed almost equivalent to a life tenancy, or what lawyers term a seizure in fee simple, of Vernwood, sued to Captain Gillingham well, and the representative of the estate, 
or whoever its owner might be, could not easily and readily have found a tenant all and more suited to their views. And so from youth to age had Captain Gillingham regarded Burnwood as his home. As far as the present tenant could see, probability of any scion of the House of Ganult ever troubling or honoring Burnwood with his presence seemed very remote. For although the trustees of the gaming Hubert Ganult had never yet absolutely and entirely lost all control of his estate, the Vernwood property was to them very much as the white elephant which took all its earnings into its own capacious maw, and so from term to term, each fourteen or twenty-one years renewed as the years flew round, each period saw the aging soldier still resident at Vernwood, and so at Vernwood he hoped to end his days. But the outbreak of the American Civil War and its results had caused Captain Gillingham to think, to think seriously whether he had not built his house upon shifting sand. Fairly well posted as the old military man was in foreign affairs, he foreknew that the effect of defeat upon the slave-owning states of the South would be the driving of the old slave profiteers from their states and plantations and homesteads, like cobies of scared game or droves of hunted hares. The breaking up of the slave system was like breaking up of a stronghold of piracy. A sink of iniquity meant the dispersion of its denizens to every point of the compass, and to the mercy, as it were, of the winds of heaven. Captain Gillian knew that Hubert Gnault was, or rather had been, a large slave profiteer in Virginia, he knew that it was not entirely beyond possibility for him or his heirs to reclaim and endeavor to re-establish their rights. It was therefore with some uneasiness of mind that he learned of the arrival in England of a claimant to heirship direct of Lawrence and Hubert Connaught with the intention of substantiating his title too, and possibly even himself occupying their old estate and the more to still when some eighteen or twenty months from the first rumor to this effect an intimation from the claimant himself direct left no doubt that bertram Gnault considered his title proven and expressing his intention of in his own proper person visiting the home of his ancestors forthwith and therefore when the heir of vernwood alighted from a hired vehicle which had conveyed him from an adjacent city it was but with small surprise that he found the occupier of vernwood growing a venerable i may almost say a decrepit old man but he was not an old man in that sense in which horse windham who carried his weight of years so brightly and cheerily with elastic step and beamy smile, was old. Although he might have been a good decade Horace Wyndham's junior, yet he looked his senior by an equal number of years. But the bowed and aged figure whom Bertram Gnault encountered in Captain Gillingham had in his day, of the typical English gentleman, been the very personification, the very beau ideal, courteous, nay gracious, almost to a fault, in manner, genial in tone, an officer around whom both his inferiors and his equals loved to rally. But as Bertram first met him, the weight of three-and-eighty summers and winters on his head, he had grown to be a decrepit but venerable old man, although with a countenance from which all its former pleasantness had not yet faded. Yet with looks blanched almost to the whiteness of driven snow, his hand shook, and his steps were tottering and uncertain beneath their weighty burthen 
of so many years. Such shortly was Captain Gillingham, whom the young man encountered as he stepped from the carriage which had conveyed him from F to the old Vernwood home, as, at the invitation of his guest or tenant, Bertram Gnault entered the spacious entrance hall of the mansion, they still hung around the corridors in their narrow frames of tarnished giltwork, many of the ancestral portraits of his race. There hung an almost life-size portrait, now faded and dim by age, but grim and bearded of Hubert de Gnault in the chain armor of the Crusaders, to whom family history and tradition had given credit for valorous deeds when serving under the lion banner of England with Richard I. There, too, the portrait of Viofric, and near it that of Kalina, his wife, which in the family, monuments were stated both by Geoffrey of Monmouth and also by Gutton Owain to be in Saxon times the earliest representatives of the race, and whose descendants held extensive baronies and lands. There were portraits of Ingolf and Oslac, members of Bertram's remote ancestry whom little was known. Then an effigy in the rude and rusty armor of period, stood Murak ap Idwell, who a thousand years before had fought under Roderick Mal, King of Wales. Of a later date was a portrait of Rudolph, by whom was said to be entertained, with many followers, Dermot McBurrough, King of Leinster, when in England to crave aid of Henry II, and Roger de Gnault, respecting whom the ancient deeds and records of the monument room say, he married Eleanor, daughter and heiress of Sir William Graveney, also sheathed in armor, the effigy of Merlin, who fought and distinguished himself under Lord Hubert Somerset at the taking of Terun and Ternay in the first year of Henry VIII. Over portraits and effigies like these and many others, the eye of the young Anglo-American roamed listlessly or curiously as he stood in the hall where so many of his forebears had walked and talked and trod as young bertram gnault stood there he seemed lost in a reverie which conjured up many many strange and romantic forms and incidents of the past ha ha laughed the pure old man as bertram stopped to look around him ha ha mr gnault you see there they are all your family history displayed before you and captain gillingham endeavoured to straighten his bent form to look around him on the portrait-covered walls for some minutes again Bertram stood absorbed in thought. Perhaps not many things are more calculated to give rise to solemn thoughts than to have a family history. The ancestral train passing in one long phalanx before one's eyes. I welcome you to Vernwood, Mr. Gnault. I welcome you heartily. Come in, come in, said the old man, as, with the unsteady shambling gait of decrepitude, he conducted his visitor through the hall. On Bertram's either hand still, as he passed, mounted on marble pedestals stood the grim effigies of his forefathers, some grasping their tall jousting lances and sheathed in their iron coating of rusty mail, while thrown carelessly into corners, or here and there affixed as trophies high up on the walls, while halberts and battle-axes, huge heavy double-handed swords, and shields and other implements of barbaric and unscientific war the warring of force rather than the warring of brains implements purporting to have been handled by brave strong-armed heavy-handed long-dead and gone generations of gnolts 
but the heir of Vernwood was invited by his host, passed all these mailed effigies into a room in which, whatever its past history might have been, all relics of barbarism have been made to give place to the comforts and elegances and refinements of modern life, life in its most luxurious, most chaste and cultured forms, or portraiture, instead of being the daubings of medieval hucksters, was the perfectionment of modern art. On every side of the profuse and tasteful arrangement of odd curios, hand-painted mirrors, rare china, costly volumes, vases of choice flowers, and the hundreds of nameless knick-knacks which infuse into life its subtlest charm, showed evidence of arrangement by a deft and gentle hand, while from an annexed conservatory the music of the falling waters of a tiny fountain mingled pleasantly with the soft and amorous twitter in the bright warm sunlight of many caged and many-colored birds, and the balmy scent of the magnolia flowers. Marjorie! Marjorie! called the old man as he entered the library, and a minute or two later there came tripling through the conservatory from the gardens beyond what Bertram Gnolt thought as she stepped from the surrounding setting, as it were, of falling waters of twittering birds and balmy petaled flowers, in her flowing draperies and negligee attire, her color heightened by the freshest, healthful flush on her cheek of the bloom of early youth, looked like some angel form. Mr. Gnolt, my daughter. Marjorie, Mr. Gnolt, said the old man. Marjorie, this is Mr. Gnolt. Mr. Bertram Gnolt, Marjorie. You have heard of him, yes? You have heard me speak of him. He has come to pay a visit to Vernwood. We have been told elsewhere that Bertram Gnolt was no diplomatist, that he was no practiced dissembler of what he felt. To say that he was taken by surprise, taken off his guard by the unexpectedness and superlative loveliness of the vision of Marjorie Gillingham, would be but very poorly to represent the case. Although Bertram was a young man of experience in American life, he was not trained or skilled in drawing-room arts. He, happy young man, had hardly yet acquired the indifferent nonchalance, the ennui of the exquisite modern nineteenth-century first-water swell, who disdains even to dance. But for all of this he bent very, very low, for he felt rather as if he prostrated himself in the presence of some divinity, some unlooked-for goddess some superior being, for neither Horace Windham nor Mr. Lumley or anyone else had told him that any divinity other than a grizzled and aged ex-captain of the guards reigned at Vernwood. Probably no one knew much of Captain Gillingham's domestic belongings at all, beyond merely as the lifelong tenant of the Vernwood estate. They recked little or not whether he had a chick or child or kith or kin, and so when his first and earliest experience of Vernwood came with it, the beautiful vision, the beautiful daydream, the beautiful surprise of Marjorie Gillingham, it seemed like infusing a newfound pleasure, a new ray of brightness into Bertram's now weary travel-tossed life. It was as if the sun had broken out and looked and smiled upon him unexpectedly from betwixt dark banks of clouds. As becomes a daughter whom a father has introduced, 
Marjorie Gillingham was very gracious to their American guest, for, notwithstanding her youthfulness, a Marjorie devolved the cares, such light and pleasant cares as indeed they were, of her father's household, a household which had once, long years ago now, suffered the overshadowing of that dark cloud, the deep dark cloud of sorrow and of sadness, which ever hangs with such profound intensity of gloom over a wife and mother's grave. And hence it was that the old man lavished on the child, who day by day unfolded into a pure and perfect womanhood, into the almost perfect similitude, the counterpart of her whom once he had so passionately loved, and yet so cruelly lost, the fullest strength of a bereaved and desolated love. Nor was the father's love for the child less devoutly or less passionately returned, and thus had the lives of these two rolled calmly on together, hers upward into expanding womanhood, his the declining road of life, calm, peaceful, bright, and beautiful, as that broad stream which swept past their beautiful Vernwood home. End of section 5